today's podcast for almost Valentine's Day. It's early February, early to mid-February 2016. My name is Tom Chick, and my game of the week is not Settlers of Catan. Now, I almost wonder... I was going to say, I almost wonder if I should apologize for this, but you know what? I make no bones about it. It's not a secret. It's evident to anyone who comes to Quarter to Three or listens to the podcast. I'm really into board gaming. A lot of you probably can't say that. Fair enough. Uh, you can. We can go our separate ways on that. But my feeling is that game design is game design, regardless of the platform. Whether it's on the PC or the PlayStation or the tabletop or in a deck of cards, a good game design is a good game design. It's worth talking about, and they're worth comparing. They have a lot in common. They're all game design. Of course they have a lot in common. But I I want to explain to you something that has happened in my household, where where I live, uh, that is kind of... Representative of the games industry, or certainly my experience with games over the last ten years or so. If you go back about ten years, uh, I lived in a in a place with an extra bedroom, and in that extra bedroom, I had three computers set up. In my office, I also had three computers set up. This might seem a little extreme. You might think, why on earth would a dude have six computers in his house? But it grew that way from having two computers that were hooked up to play things. I Actually, it was Duke Nukem, I think. They were hooked up to play Duke Nukem. We then added a third, at which point you can't play team games with three. So let's add a fourth so we can have 2v2. From there, you get a fifth and a sixth computer. You're running 3v3 games, uh, and it becomes a kind of an institution. Uh, my friends and I would meet once a week. For a while, it was Wednesday nights, but I think... Actually, I think it was Friends. Somebody was like, one of the guys who was a regular was like, well, Friends is on on Wednesdays, and I have to watch that with my wife, so can we meet another night? So we went to Thursdays, uh, and for well over 10, 15 years, um, this has been a regular weekly occurrence that we meet, and 10 years ago, we were playing video games, 3v3. A lot of shooters, some RTSs, some action RPGs like Diablo. We had a lot to choose from. But uh, it was not easy for me to do for a couple of reasons. As you can imagine, maintaining six computers is is neither easy nor cheap. Uh, Over time, a PC will become obsolete and it won't run the newest games. So it was not easy to keep six computers up to date so that we could play the newest things. Uh, Furthermore, it was just a lot of what I would call donkey work, keeping drivers updated, uh, keeping games patched, especially when I wasn't sure what people were going to want to play any given week. So every now and then I would just fire up all six computers and whatever games were installed, I would just make sure to check for updates and apply patches. Um, But uh, also I even had issues with operating systems. As you can imagine, up until a year ago, I actually had a computer in this house that was running Windows XP. How retro is that? You think you're cool with your Atari 2600? Yeah, I had Windows XP on a PC. So over time, as this became more and more difficult, and as there became fewer and fewer games that conveniently supported LAN play, we would often get to where there were only four computers that were up-to-date enough to run the latest games. So two of the computers would often be the ones that we would only use if we were playing something older. So if we wanted to play the new stuff, sorry guys, only four of us can play at a time. The rest of you, uh, go play on the Xbox or something, and then you can have a turn later. Uh, Eventually, I moved into a place, I I live with my best friend right now, which is awesome, uh, and he has the room that used to have three computers in it. So at one point, four computers got crammed into this room that's my office right now. Eventually, even those got fewer and fewer to where now, I say now, uh, as of several months ago, there were two computers in here, and they were mainly to play RTSs with one or two friends of mine who play RTSs. Uh, But even RTSs, as, as you may know, those kind of gave way to MOBAs. So we were playing some of the older RTSs, which, by the way, still fantastic. 
there are not many genres that hold up as well as RTSs, I think. Rise of, Le Rise of Legends is still an absolutely inspired design. Rise of Nations, of course. Even some of the older, quote-unquote, older things that might have slightly outdated interfaces. Age of Mythology is still, not only is it still a tremendous game, believe it or not, it is still getting content. You may not know this, but it was recently uh, updated to add, actually, I think this was sold separately, so it wasn't just a, an update. They recently, and I say they, uh, a group, I believe, financially supported by Microsoft, created and released Chinese gods for Age of Mythology. It had Norse, Greek, Egyptian gods. It had an add-on that uh, included, I think they were called Atlantean gods, basically fake gods. <laughs> and now it has Chinese gods. Uh, and this happened as recently as a month ago. So that game holds up very well. So I would have these two computers in here just for me and my friend to, to play RTSs from time to time. Uh, as for the weekly gathering, as it became more and more difficult to get a, a contemporary modern art, uh, game set up for us to play, to get enough copies of it, we would maybe sometimes play things split screen on the Xbox 360. But as split screen became more and more of a specialized feature, less and less supported in new games, we ended up going to the dining room table and playing more and more board games. So board gaming, and, and that's now what the weekly gathering is. We don't do any land gaming. We don't play anything split screen. Uh, all of that stuff, by the way, has moved to online functionality rather than local LAN or split screen functionality. That's even more specialized these days. Uh, so multiplayer video gaming is basically something that you can't do with people in the same room. If you want to do that with your friend, your friend has to go away back to his house and you do it with him from there. If you want to hang out with your friend, a board game is a perfect opportunity. So our weekly gathering now is board gaming. And uh, you probably know that if you listen to this podcast, if you read the reviews that I write, you probably know, wow, Tom talks about board games a lot, or he's always doing these board game reviews. And if you're not into that, that might seem weird to you. Sorry, uh, you'll just have to deal with it, I'm afraid. Actually, you know what? You don't have to. It's pretty easy to skip a board game review or say, hey, this is a board game mean podcast. I don't want to listen to that. I'll wait till he talks about video games. Fair enough. But I, I want to then tell you, so I had this office set up with two computers for RTSs, and we would play board games at the dining room table. Now, I also like, and this might even sound weird to some of you who are into board games, I really like solitaire board gaming. And yes, believe it or not, that is a thing. There are some really good solitaire board games that I would put on par with a single-player video game. A solitaire board game, it has to have an AI, by the way. Uh, because you you are usually you have to fight some kind of a system and it, the system has to appear intelligent it has to behave in ways other than hey roll a dice and on a one to three it moves here on a four to six it moves there that's not interesting so good single player games have an AI one of my favorites is a game called Navajo Wars a very complex in-depth game from GMT in which you play generations of Navajo and the AI represent first the Spanish and then the Americans, who are the, the imperial power of the day. And the AI seems a little erratic, but there's a pattern to how it works, and it represents what those imperial forces are doing and how the Navajo perceive it. Um, and it's a really cool AI for a game. Another one of my favorite single-player board games, Dawn of the Zeds, a zombie game. Zombies don't necessarily need a fancy AI, they just move forward, they attack anything that's in front of them, and they go slowly. But Dawn of the Zeds does have an AI that determines which zombies move where and how far they go, whether or not there are any special zombies. Uh, it has an event deck, which is orchestrated to unfold in, in, in a certain sequence, but with randomization. And I would consider all of that an AI. Uh, a game I've played recently, uh, this... This is the title's a little on the nose. See if you can get, guess what this game is about. It's called Struggle for the Galactic Empire. And if you guessed that it is a strategic level space game, sci-fi, you're absolutely right. Struggle for the Galactic Empire. You play an empire, 
um, and you're holding out against rebels and, and aliens. Um, usurpers can try to take the throne from you. Uh, there are breakaway republics. It's a great big strategic level kind of political military simulation. And it plays on a map of the entire galaxy where each sector is 10,000 light years across and each turn is a generation. So huge scale. Um, also a very cool AI because different forces that are arrayed against your empire have different rules and different behaviors and that's very much AI. Uh, so the problem with these games is that like a good single player video game, you can't just sit down and play them in 20 minutes. Struggle for the Galactic Empire, that's easily, uh, if it goes well, if you if you die quickly, which happens fairly often, and your empire gets overwhelmed, you can easily finish in an hour. But if you're doing well, if it goes on for a while, if you're hanging on and you're maybe getting a good score, because it's all, basically all about scoring a particular scenario, that's going to be set up for three, four hours. Dawn of the Zeds, easily a couple of hours. Again, assuming you don't just get overrun by zombies early on. Fantasy Flight makes these horror-themed games that are putatively cooperative, but I'm not really into that. Uh, any, any game that's cooperative, I feel, is, is just as easily played solitaire. Uh, games that I like to play with my friends are games that take advantage of them being there. Us cooperatively shuffling pieces around, that, that's not really our thing. I appreciate some people are into that. That's not what we do. So there's a, there's a game called Arkham Horror, and it was later kind of rebooted as Eldritch Horror from Fantasy Flight that is, as I said, supposedly cooperative, but I like playing those solitaire, and they easily take upwards of a couple of hours. So the problem with that is, because I live here with, with my friend and his son is around a lot, which is awesome, but basically it means I can't just set something up in the dining room table and then leave it for, and then play it for a couple hours and then come back maybe the next day. People eat there. His son does his homework there. Uh, so basically that meant I needed someplace else to set up those kind of games. And hey, looking around in my office, oh, there's that table over there where that computer sits that I so rarely use. So there went the last computer. It's actually sitting here. I can use a kind of a dual monitor setup if I need to. But basically I'm down to one computer in this office and a table that is set up with a solitaire game at any given time. It's sort of like this corner is the digital video game entertainment, the, the electronic stuff. This corner is the analog, physical bits stuff, the, the cardboard and the dice, the cards. Currently is, in fact, another putatively cooperative game is called Pandemic Legacy. Uh, I have it set up over here single player right now, uh, and I've just started. So with video games, you can play something that is long and epic and expansive. You can play World of Warcraft that is never-ending. You can play Fallout 4, Skyrim, and sink 100, of hour, 100 hours into it. Or you can play something that's short. There are some very good match threes, for instance. Hey, play this for, for five minutes, and, and then you're done. And there's everything in between. Solitaire board gaming, not really the case. Most of my experience with solitaire board games is that they are big and complicated and take many hours, and they need to occupy a tabletop for a long time. Until recently, in which uh, I discovered a game called Onirim. Uh, you, can, you can find my review of it in the, at quarter to three. Onirim, as you're about to find out, because I'm about to speak with the fellow who made it, Shadi Torbi. Uh, Onirim is a great, colorful, lively, well-designed, solitaire board game that you can play in less than 10 minutes. Uh, it's part of a series. Onirim, Sylveon, and Castellon uh, are the three games in the Oniverse series, all created by Shadi Torbi, and I'm about to speak with him. So uh, stick around, listen to that, and I'll be back after that conversation. Of the games that you have made, uh, I believe there are technically four in the Oniverse, but right now only three of them are available. Is that correct? Yes, I think that's correct, unless your game store has some copies of Urbion left. But otherwise, uh, yeah. From way back when, right. So um, which of these 
uh, four games came first. Was Irby on the first one? It was Onirim. Onirim was really the first one. And then Urbion came second. And, mm-hmm. um, and then in the design process, I don't really remember. I think Castellian came as the third design and uh, then Sylvian. And when we published it, we, we did, uh, we did the other way around. We, we restarted by, by rebooting the series, publishing Onirim's second edition. Uh, then we had Sylvian and then Castellian. So then, having started with Onirim, uh, how did you come to make this game? What, what was your background leading up to being the guy who designed this? Well, my background um, was being a guy who loved games and uh, who also sometimes enjoyed solitaire gaming, um, especially playing some uh, co-op games, especially Reiner Knizia's Lord of the Rings. Uh, I played it solo basically because we were losing so badly when we played with my with my gaming group that uh, I thought I have to try it alone and and see if there is some strategy where we wouldn't lose so badly and I, I thought it was really fun to play as a solitaire game. It was not only an experience to understand the game better, but it was really a very fun challenge also, a challenge to do. And um, I started exploring a bit. There weren't that many um, games back then that could be played as solitaire games. I tried some patience with the traditional 52 card. Um, oh, right, right. And th- those weren't that fun, I-, I must say. And and so I started thinking, would it be possible to create some sort of modern patience to, to be able to play solo? Um, also having maybe something a bit lighter and um, that you could take with you on, on travel because I'm actually professionally, I'm an opera singer, so I have to travel a lot and I don't always, when I'm in, in, um, on my travels and abroad, I don't always have um, colleagues who want to play. So, um, so yeah, I was thinking it, it would be cool to have a series of games that could be um, playable as solitaire games and that wouldn't take so much space in your luggage. Now, when you talk about having this as a series of games, um, there is uh, all four games together comprise what I believe you call the Oniverse. Yes. Um, did this come, was this, uh, did you make Onirim and then decide, oh, there are other games to make in this series? Or from the very beginning, did you think, I want to make a set of solitaire playable games with unique gameplay mechanics? Uh, was that part of the idea all along, or did it happen after you made Onirim? I really wanted to have a series, because if I, I have to tell you the long version of the story. Actually, I was in Germany, and I had bought um, Alcabone, which is the solitaire or two-player version of um, Bonanza, uh, Uwe Rosenberg's uh, game. And I, I found it extremely good. I, I really enjoyed it, and I thought, okay, I, I'm going to buy other games of, of this series. And then immediately afterwards, I, I thought, no, this is stupid because this is the only game of the series that you can play as a solitaire. And as you know, board games are very popular in, in Germany and in the store. You had all, and it was not a very, it was not a specialized store for, for board games. It was some sort of, you know, I don't know how you call it in the States, but almost a shopping mall where you could find anything, you know, mm-hmm. a general store, basically. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they had several um, versions, I mean, several expansions and, and so on of, of this uh, Bonanza series. And uh, that's why I had really in mind this on the shelf, all this series of, of, of boxes. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool if instead of having only one game of the series that could be playable as a solitaire game, you would have a whole series of games uh, that you could play as a solitaire. So so I, 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 I started thinking about it, and I had two ideas. One was um, you are in a labyrinth, and the other one is you have to, to unite two um, opposed forces like angel and angel and demon, and, you know, angels and demons, and, and you have to try to find a balance between them. And this would become urban later on, and the labyrinth idea would be the first I, I, I would develop to become Onirim. So, so this is how it started. 
So when when uh, when someone when you talk about the Oniverse, uh, how do you describe it to someone who might not be acquainted with the games? What what do you say it is? I would say it's a series of games that can be playable either as solitaire games or as two-player cooperative games to the two-player playing against the system in this case. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I like that you put it that way, Shadi, because I get the sense, and I believe I've heard you uh, say something to this effect before, uh, that you think of these primarily... Um, mechanically, and I don't mean that uh, in a pejorative sense, but you think mainly from a gameplay perspective rather than a narrative perspective. Because I look at the Oniverse, um, and I definitely appreciate there, there are three very different games here. There's a deck management game, a kind of a territory control game, uh, and a tile placement game. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I also wonder, you know, one of these is about uh, navigating a dream. Another one is about fighting a forest fire, okay. and the other one is uh, kind of defending a castle. Uh, so, is there any thematic unity that you've tried to apply? Yes and no. I mean, I try to have some sort of a coherent universe, the universe, as I, as I called it. Um, but at the same at the same time, this um, universe, this universe, being um, set in a world of dreams. I can allow myself to to be extremely free uh, in it. Uh, I think it's more or less what lots of of authors that that write in a fantasy world or in a science fiction world uh, also maybe feel, because you you have much more freedom, obviously, than if you are writing in a historical setting um, or in a very realistic um, setting, but I think yeah, there there is some sort of uh, I hope crazy dreamy um, coherence in it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, tell me, uh, I I don't know how to pronounce her name. Tell me your artist's name. Is it Elise it, Plessis? Plessis. Yeah, that, that, that's what, that's what they would say in in, in France. I I think Plessis. Yeah, Elise. Plessis. Uh, how much does Elise's work inform? your decisions about theme like when you work with her does she know for instance that sylvian is going to be about a forest fire uh or do you put together a prototype and in working with her a theme emerges uh talk to me about how you work with her because i think um a lot of what stands out for me in these games uh certainly the mechanics i I resonate with and and they're a big part of the experience but what elise has done uh, really colors how I think of and remember the games as I play them. Uh, just the presentation, I think, is so strong that, I, that I'd like to hear a little bit about how you work with her to create this. Most of the times, I, I, um, I, have a, I, I work alone first, building a prototype that would be extremely sound and solid in a mechanical, from a mechanical point of view. Mm-hmm. And um, at the same time, I start um, writing ideas on how the theme would be. And sometimes it is actually the theme that is really the first, um, that gives me the first, Im- the first impulse to, to do it. And sometimes it's the mechanic. And then it's the back and forth in my head while I'm developing the mechanic um, uh, of the game to, to have a theme that, that would work. And sometimes actually um, elements of the theme help me go forward with some of the mechanic aspect. So it's really, it's not I do a whole game just mechanically and then I try to paste on anything that would work. It's, it's more uh, one step in the mechanic direction than one step of, of theme and so on. Mm-hmm. And um, and then actually most of the time I have the theme that is really ready and I give Elise a list of... of, of um, the the, the 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 illustration the drawings that I that I would like for this, um, but what is really interesting is that we work in in a also in a back and forth process. So it's not like I want this and then she does it and it's thank you bye see you next mm-hmm. see you in a year for for the next team. It's much more back and forth also because she she can bring some sketch. I mean I'm the, the the big talker here. I mean I send her big emails with loads of description and stuff. And most of the time she asks some questions but sends drawings. Actually, which is obviously much stronger, much much more effective in a way. But I cannot draw, and fortunately, because otherwise I would somehow give her too much of a direction 
in it. Mm-hmm. So I, I like to, to express it only with, with words. I try actually not to be too precise uh, because I, I really like to give her as much freedom as I can because in this freedom comes from this freedom, comes sometimes really stuff that I didn't expect at all. Sometimes we even have a little misunderstandings um, about stuff and, and there are those misunderstandings can be extremely productive because then I think, okay, my first idea was this, but actually this works much better. So I will rather take what you sent me um, now and, 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 and reorganize the, the stuff in, in, in another way. So, um, so this is more or less how we work. Sometimes um, I, I may be hesitating between two themes and then I say, okay, we could go this direction or this direction. Is there any direction that you would like more? So it really depends on, on the game, actually. So this gives rise to two questions I want to ask you. Uh, firstly, uh, can, you, can you tell me about a time when Elise might have sent you something that was a real aha moment for you, where she helped you see something uh, in a new or unexpected way. And I would love to hear specifically about a piece of artwork or a character uh, that really stood out for you as a kind of discovery as you were working with her. Um... For instance, I mean, I, I have, I, I know there are, there, it happened several times in, in our, in our collaboration. Now I cannot give you one instance, but for instance, I, no, I, I can give you one. Mm-hmm. Castellian, for instance. In Castellian, you have three levels of, of gaming. Um, the first one I designed was actually the last one, the, the, the more complicated one. And then as a game for myself, I thought, okay, how far can I go uh, simplifying um, the mechanism to have a really, really simple game, something that, that a child could play, something that you could really teach to somebody who never opened a game except for Monopoly or, I don't know, something like this. And, and so I started taking layers off uh, until I got those two introduc- introduction level. I mean, the, the basic game, which is level two, and then really the, the, the first level. Um, and my first idea was to have um, little monsters coming first, and then bigger monsters for the second level, and then really huge monsters, the big bad guy that you have to fight in the, in the last level. And then I thought, well, wouldn't it be cooler to have somehow the learning process that you as a gamer um, have when you learn the game, actually when you discover Castellian, to have it mirrored somehow in the theme. And so I, I, I remember that Elise had, uh, did this very cute architect guy for, for um, Onirim in the expansion, the denizens of the, of the universe. Um, and, and I thought this would be so cool if instead of fighting a small monster on the first level, you would simply be in the architect's school and, and um, learn how to build your, your castle. And so this is how the theme changed from a small attack, a bigger attack, and then a huge attack to school, academy, and then being ready for, for, for combat. Uh, is the architect in Castellian one of the denizens? Is the artwork still the same character? Yeah, it's the same character. If you look in... That's in, awesome. It's, it's, it's the same guy. And, and I really like you were asking me before about how coherent I want this, this um, universe to be. And I think it's more this dreamy stuff where you have those kind of recurring characters you know, that, that, that are there and then they disappear for a couple of games and then they have a little a small part in game and then they have a bigger part. You know, I, I like this, this kind of, of um, uh, yeah, weaving some sort of, 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 of universe like this. Shadi, that actually makes me wonder, as I'm sitting here thinking now, and I, it hadn't occurred to me to do this before, uh, there are squirrels in both Onirim and, Kes- and Sylveon, aren't there? 
Are there squirrel spies in both games? Exactly, yeah, yeah. They have a much bigger part, obviously, in, in Sylveon, because you can, you can have them all the time. I mean, you basically can draft them in each game. And in Onirim, if you play with the last expansion, you may be lucky because you only um, um, shuffle half of those 16 cards in the ah, right. deck. Maybe because two of those cards are, are squirrels, and, and they, yeah, basically they spy for you as they did uh, somehow in, 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 in Sylveon. So they have more or less, an, I mean, it's not, obviously not the same effect because in Onirim you only have one deck of cards and in, in, in Sylveon you have four deck of uh, Ravage cards, but it's, it's the same idea. Basically they do the same. They, they help you in, in, in looking what, what is coming for you. So. Yeah, I love that. That hadn't occurred to me before. But yeah, of course, the same squirrels in both games. Uh, one of the things I really love in Castellian, and this is only something that uh, I feel unfolds over time as you play, uh, and this is something that I feel both you and Elise have created, is this idea of the interaction between the different monsters and the different edifices that you make with the tiles. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, uh, and I'm sure you, you've thought of this, this is nothing new to you, of course, and it's intentional, uh, the towers, which are the vertical orientations of tiles, uh, associate with the harpies, which are flying creatures. Uh, the foundation, which is the very ground layer of something, uh, associates with, it saves you from the earthworm, uh, you know, which is coming from underneath. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the hordes, which are a bunch of little ravening creatures, uh, you have a horizontal defensive line against them. And the behemoths, you know, big, strong, powerful creatures, you need a solid block of four tiles. Uh, for, for me, that's a perfect example of thematic and gameplay and artwork uh, unity. Uh, and it was just so pleasant to read the rules and think, okay, I have to try to remember this goes with that. And then to have it click and go, oh, yeah, of course, towers protect you from things that fly. The foundation protects you from something digging up underneath the earth. Um, I love how, as an experience, that just comes together on a couple of different levels. Uh, Very gratifying to discover that. Um, So, uh, Shadi, you mentioned uh, you, with the mechanics, sometimes a theme emerges from these. Can you remember, and maybe you can't, uh, but can you remember any themes that you ended up rejecting or not using? What were some of the, what, what kinds of Sylvians or Castilians might we have seen that you ended up not making in favor of what you did make? Hmm. That's now difficult to say. Uh... I, I wonder partly, I, I mainly ask just because I think it's kind of inspired and really strange uh, that Sylvian is about fighting a forest fire with fountains to save trees. Yeah. You know, was that ever armies defending flags or something prosaic like that? Uh, was it always... Uh, that, that to me is just so weird and inspired. Uh, and I'm curious if it ever was something else. Yes, it was. Actually, my first idea was simply to defend a castle against monsters, or if not a castle, some kind of city. Actually, I think my first idea may have been, if I remember cor- correctly, uh, but it's, it's years ago now, but I think it was like you have to defend maybe Urbion, basically, the city of ah. dreams. Now that you balanced it, you have to defend it against monsters coming from outside. And and then I thought, yeah, this is this is a little bit boring. I mean, it works obviously, and it may have have been fun to 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 see the city um, in another point of view. But somehow I I wanted something else. And at that time, I was driving a lot to Germany where, where I had a production, and uh, and some parts of Germany you have they they have those wonderful forests. And then I thought, okay. Uh, why not a forest and 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 then the bad guys would be like fire monsters c- coming to 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 burn the for- the forest down and um and, and so this is how it evolved to be um yeah to 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 be uh, um sylvian but for instance you were asking me if the theme uh, um, uh, reverberates back on on the mechanics I think at that time I absolutely had no idea about those little um, very weak 
non-elementals, fire elementals that have zero as, as a value and that can, they can flare up up to four. At that time, I didn't have this, this, I didn't have any monster that was that weak, but I think it's developing this game about a forest being attacked by fire that gave me then this theme gave me then the idea of a small fire that is like a will-o'-the-wisp that is not really dangerous. But then when it flares up, it becomes the most dangerous monster of the, of the army. So um, this is, for, this is one, one example of this back and forth you can have between theme and, and mechanic. Uh, Shadi, I have to say, in all of the three uh, Oniverse games I have played, the, uh, the thing I most hate of anything else is the blaze card. You know, the blaze card in Sylveon is, that is what I dread when I think of everything, you know, all the things that can turn over in Castellian, you know, coming up with a, a nightmare in Onirim. Nothing is worse than those blaze cards. So, <laughs> I also, there's this wonderful elemental simplicity there, this idea of fire and water and trees. Um, and you might understand this. I also... I. That's awesome to me that you're an opera singer. I love opera, Shadi. And when I hear you think, when I, when I hear, when I talk about Sylveon, it just now occurs to me, there's almost something like at the end of, uh, of, of Wagner's Ring Cycle, where Siegfried's funeral pyre, uh, you know, flares up, and the Rhine Maidens come out and put it out with the river, and uh, I just kind of, that immediately flashed into my mind. And I think as an opera singer, you might appreciate that image there. Um, uh, so I, I, having played, my experience was playing Onirim. Um, it was somebody else's copy, and I immediately bought a copy of my, myself. And immediately thereafter, I decided, well, gosh, I love this. I need to see what other two games he has made. I, I'm enamored of those as well. Uh, so now I, I, I really want to know what Urbion is and if I'll ever be able to play that. What, what is the fate of Urbion? Well, actually, um, I think everybody in the theme, in, in um, Z-Man and Philosophia's theme, love, loves this game. And, and I, I, I am actually also, fun. I mean, it's, it's maybe a little bit weird for a designer to say he loves this or this game. I mean, obviously, I, I'm fortunately not in a position, I'm not famous enough that I never have to publish game for money. I mean, so um, so basically, when I publish a game, is that I'm I'm convinced it it might be fun, it might be uh, maybe a, an enjoyable and and a good game in it. Um, and so I also re really much like this game. We set it aside now um, because when we decided to do a reboot, um, when Sophie Gravel one will, uh, decided to do a reboot of the of, of the series. In, in, in nicer boxes, bigger boxes, to also uh, be able to put more components in it. Um, we decided it would be better to make a second edition of Onirim, because it is the first game of the series. It, is, it gives also the name, its name to, to the series, but mm -hmm. then not follow immediately with another second edition. We have plans, and I, we also want to do a much bigger second edit. I mean, exactly like Onirim, we want to add new art and new expansions, so it, it will not be just a reprint of the first one. So it, 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 it will not be exactly the same, but nevertheless, we still wanted to have two very new games instead of a second edition, although an expanded second edition. We really wanted to have something fresh. That's why we went with, with Sylvian and, and Castellian. And now basically we are, we are asking ourselves, I mean, um, in the meantime, I have developed some other mechanics, uh, mechanics um, uh, also some dice games that, did, that are playable in this Universe series, so Solitaire or two-player cooperative. And Elise did some fantastic art for, for those games, so um, we may keep pushing um, Urbion a little bit further to, to have those new um, new designs come coming out. But it's not that we uh, decided we want we never want to see Urbion again. I mean, it happens in some series. We have game designers that that say no, this this doesn't belong here, or, or they ban some 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 cards or some expansions from, from a series. But this is absolutely not the case here. But we just maybe want to to present 
some new design, uh, some new game games before uh, coming back to, to Erbion. Now, uh, can can you give me, so Onarim, I think of as a, a deck management game about dreams. Uh, uh, Sylveon is sort of a territory control tower defense game about forest fires. Um, and Castellian is a tile laying game about uh, defending a castle. Is there a similar one word or one sentence description you can give me about Erbion to, to tell me kind of what I'm missing? How, how would you characterize Erbion? Hmm, how would I characterize Urban? I would say it's, um, you know, those games like, uh, well, like uh, Caesar and Cleopatra or like a pecking order when you have a row of cards and you try to beat, or oh, one of my favorite games of all time is um, Battle Line, also a Reiner team ah. design. You know, where you have to, yes. you, you have something in the middle and then you, everybody plays cards on each side and you try to have a better combination than your opponent. So um, imagine a game like this, but instead of beating the combination that you have on the other side, you have to balance it in order to have the same value on both sides. But obviously there are already randomly laid cards on, on one side or on both sides and you have respecting some very simple um, card-laying rules. You have to lay cards in order to establish uh, a balance between the two um, because the idea, the theme is that you are in the city of dreams and in the city you have good dreams and bad dreams living basically together and, and you have to, to balance it. It's not like you, you want the good dreams to beat the, the bad dreams. You need both to have a, a balanced um, uh, city of dreams. You need the bad dreams also. So it's not about beating them. It's about having the same uh, strength on, on both sides. That's uh, you mentioned earlier the idea of uniting opposing forces. That and, and Urbion is the expression of that. Then. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. This is uh-huh. the expression. This is um, also we were talking about the theme. My first idea was, as I said, a conclave of angels and demons. And for mm-hmm. one reason or another, they had to establish balance because you needed as much good and evil uh, as evil in the world, something like this. But it didn't really make sense, you know. Actually, no. It would be better a world where you would have more good than bad actually. And when um, I developed Onirim, I thought, oh, actually my idea of a a conclave of angel and and, and demon is is much better suited for a world of dreams, because I think, I mean, uh, I don't think you you have to study a lot of psychology to know that I I think bad dreams are part of how we process bad stuff that happens, you know, uh, during the day. So it's not necessarily an evil. It's, It's maybe something that we really need also for our personal balance. And and so in this in this case, it, 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 I thought it was it made much more sense in a world of dreams to have a city where it's necessary to have as good as as much good as you have evil. So sure, I I also think Shadi of like the classic image of you know a person has an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other. Yeah, uh, it, yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah. Um. So uh, as someone who uh, you mentioned that you you made games because you liked to play a lot of games. Uh, are there any solitaire games that you play these days that you like? Yeah, I mean, since I started the 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 Oniverse, um series, lots of solitaire games came out. I mean, there are much more now than than five years ago when when I, when I started. Um, I have actually a whole shelf full of, of solitaire games, and there are a lot of I really enjoy. Last stuff I played, I think it was a game, a Star Wars game, actually that um, didn't isn't that huge on BGG. It's a game by Marcus and Inka uh, Brandt, and it's called Angriff der Klonkrieger, which is basically Attack of the Clones. It's, it's just the title of the second, you know, uh, um, Star Wars prequel. And it's a very clever dice game. Um, it's basically, it's actually a cooperative game. You should be at least two players to play it, but as in many um, cooperative games, you can take two characters and, and have fun with it, I mean, it's exactly the same way. I have fun playing Pandemic, Solitaire. I think it's it's also great. Um, the Lamont brothers uh, did a uh, cooperative Solitaire game a couple of years ago. It was called Spellbound. I think it's really brilliant. 
Um, yeah, so those are the, the the last one I played, and I really enjoy them a lot. I, I, I enjoy tremendously Race for the Galaxy as a solitaire. I think the solitaire var- variant was extremely clever, and and um, I mean it's a great game. I enjoy Race for the Galaxy a lot as a multiplayer and two player game, especially. But I must say they really did a, a very good job with the solitaire uh, version. I played it a lot. Um, yeah. So is, is the is the race for the galaxy solitaire variant? Is that something that's official in one of the later add-ons? It's totally or is that like official. a, a it's totally fan official? It is. In, um, if you if you have if you take the second expansion, I think you have all that you you, you need a dice or two. I don't remember. But I think it's one dice and a little board with chits, and then then you have some sort of a robot who does stuff. But what's interesting, he is random, but not that random. There is some element that you can anticipate about how he will play, and and you can react accordingly. You know, it's it's really it's it's really fine, uh, really fun uh, variant. It's an official one. It does seem a Race for the Galaxy has come a long way since I just have the first edition, and I'm constantly hearing about what the, the, the later add-ons bring to the table and what new things are in there, and I guess I didn't realize that it was also now a viable solitaire game. That's good to know. Yeah, they did it pretty. Uh, they, uh, uh, from the second expansion on, they, they added the solitaire variant. Now, uh, Shadi, I'm curious if you think this is weird, because this is how I feel, and I love hearing you talk this way about solitaire and co-op games. My feeling is that when I'm with my friends, uh, I like games that take unique advantage of my friends being there, yeah. mainly mainly sort of uh, oppositional games, like games where we're competing against each other. Because when we're playing something like Pandemic or Eldritch Horror uh, that's supposedly co-op, my feeling is... I can do this and get the same experience when they're not here. Now that they're here, I want to play something that I can't do when they're here. So I don't like a lot of co-op games unless I'm playing them solitaire. Like I kind of feel like this isn't the, the best use of, of our limited gaming time. Uh, and and I, I get made fun of for that sometimes. Um, uh, so I, I, I understand what you're saying. When I play a cooperative games um, with friends, I usually like to enjoy. I usually enjoy watching the interaction because most of the times I have played this game a lot before. So, for instance, when I introduce a friend to Pandemic or, or, or a Lord of the Ga- a Lord of the Rings, it, it happens still that I, I put the game of the, on, on the table. Not so often now, but uh, I mean, it's it's really one of my first. Um, big experience in, in modern board games. So I re- I'm really still very much fond of it. Um, I, I, I'm all, I almost feel a little bit as I am a um, role-playing master of the dungeon, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So, so I don't say anything. I, I, I'm, not, I'm trying to avoid this alpha player uh, bias that you that has one player saying, "Oh, you should do this." I know. Oh, and then had this happens. It's much more fun to to watch how uh, it will happen as a group. But it's obviously not the same as really, as you said, being you know together playing against each other. Um, yeah, I mean, I think for some players it's, it's very nice because I, there are some people um, sometimes who are afraid of this confrontational. Uh, right. stuff and and in this in those cases putting out a, a, a co-op game can be really really relaxing you know to 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 yeah to to relax a little bit the atmosphere especially if it was a hard uh, confrontational game before but but I I understand, I, I get what you what you say and obviously when I'm with my my friend I also have much more the tendency to pull out the the other the non-cooperative games. I, I also find it frustrating, and I imagine you feel the same way, uh, when I introduce my friends to a cooperative game that I've already played solitaire, and I kind of know the system, uh, I almost feel, and this is terrible to say, I almost feel that when I play it with them, they're messing me up because they don't know the game as well. And I don't want to sit there and tell them what to do. I'll let them make their choices. I, like you, love watching them discover it. I love watching them interact and figure things out. Uh, But I do much worse as far as succeeding or failing when I'm playing it cooperatively. Uh, Like there's a a co-op game 
called Robinson Crusoe, which is very survival-oriented. Uh, and I play it solitaire, and it's difficult and challenging, but you can get through it. Anytime I introduce it to new players, I have to immediately resign myself to the fact, okay, we're probably not going to survive this because they don't really know what they're doing, and I'm not going to take their moves for them. Mm. And I just kind of have to realize... Okay, I'm playing this to present it to them now, not to win it or not to beat it anymore. I have to let go of that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's exactly this, the same state of mind that I have, but I don't find it really frustrating because, yeah, well, I mean, I, especially if I won enough of my solitaire games, if the system still resists me, um, then I, I would, I, it would probably be really frustrating, you know, if I had a, a losing streak of five solitaire games that I all lost and then friends come and say, oh, we want to play this and I, then I, we lose again that maybe it would be like, ah, but, but yeah, um, when you, when you know a game system very well, uh, yeah, as I said, it's, it's another, it's almost like a role playing master, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I want to talk, I, just because I'm fascinated at this, uh, tell me about your career in opera. Can you, can you briefly tell me how you came to that and, and what you do? You're, you're a singer, you said. Yes, exactly. Well, I discovered opera when I was 15 years old, which is quite young for an opera singer. And I immediately fell in love with it. It was The Magic Flute by Mozart. I adored it right away hmm? and then i thought okay i'm i'm i'm, I'm I, I want to take singing lessons and i thought oh i'm probably way too late because i had in mind all those um uh, prodigy pianists and violin player that have to start when they are like three years old you know otherwise you're too too old and actually everybody well, who knew a little bit and the first teacher i met told me no you are so young your voice is there uh, has yet matured it's very and so i was oh cool i may have a chance actually to really become a professional singer if I start this early. And um, yeah, so I studied music for some years and then I started having my first uh, my first jobs and I've been doing it yeah for almost more, more than 15 years now. Are you a tenor, a baritone? What I'm a bass baritone. Ah, uh, now I... Uh, some people have an appreciation of opera that's very technical, and I imagine for singers that, that can be part of what you have to know about opera, of course. Uh, some people enjoy the story or the stage presentations. Um, when you think of opera, uh, do you think of uh, – like, are the stories important to you? You mentioned Magic Flute, for instance. Yes. Uh, do, do the characters in the story of Magic Flute, are those important to you? Or is the actual music and the, the technique that Mozart brought important to you? Or is it holistic? Or were all of the things kind of equally appeal to you? I think it's always the mixture that that has fascinated me. Um, I am. I actually studied before uh, uh, studying um, uh, singing in the conservatory. I, I studied uh, literature in in, um, in 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 university. So I, I, for me, story is extremely important. I mean, and characters and how they interact. I mean, I'm a big fan of movies, of theater plays, of, of uh, TV series. I mean, the story is, is essential. If, if I have a, an opera with glorious music but um, boring, uh, boring story, it will not be the same. I will, I will obviously listen to it with great pleasure, uh, but I may not be uh, so eager to go watch it, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, yeah, and, and and when I think it's a mixture, obviously of everything. I mean, usually what I first do is study the text. Um, I start with it. I, I really like to speak it, you know, especially if it's in a foreign language, but also in French, you know, to really get out, um, uh, to to not get influenced. Um, uh, by by how the composer set it in music, because obviously ah. when he chooses to set it in music, he he, ta- he chooses a, a certain rhythm, a certain uh, level of of, of um, intensity, and and it may be interesting first to to have your own idea, or if it is a very famous piece and that you already know it because you listen to it so many times, to get a little bit away from it, you know, by really just speaking it. Um, and then, obviously, I study the music, and obviously, when I do this, I have to think in a very technical way to have the the best um, vocal, how can I say, vocal gesture uh, on this piece. But, it's yeah, in the end, it's obviously a, a mixture of all those those elements. When uh, I first discovered opera myself, I was also not quite as young as you, but... I, I was in graduate school, 
um, studying a completely unrelated topic. And to help pay my way through graduate school, I worked in the music library. Um, and I was mainly, you know, people would come in and they would check out recordings. And so I was talking to a lot of musicians. And through that, I came to hear a few operas um, and was was completely enamored of them. And the way I approached them, uh, it sounds like you with the text, is I will read the libretto for an act. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I will listen to the music. I'll just have it on loop while I was studying or working. Um, so that the text would be there first, and then it would lay the music over it. And it was very important for me to do it act after act, it, progression, and to not know in advance what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember taking an introduction to opera class, thinking, oh, this is great, I want to know more about this, and being so angry when the teacher just offhand explained what happened at the end of the ring cycle, because the ring cycle is a huge undertaking. <laughs> and I was very slowly working my way well, through it, and he just spoils the ending. It's like, it's like when someone ruins Game of Thrones for you. Uh, I was the same way with that. Uh, do, do you have a favorite uh, opera? Oh, this would be really difficult. No, I, could, I, know. I, I couldn't. Yeah. No, I couldn't say. I mean, really, with a lot of difficulty, I could maybe give you a top ten, but it would take too much time. But no, one favorite opera. I don't even have one favorite composer actually. Uh-huh. Um, so uh, there also, I could maybe give you a top five, um, but it would be unfair, and I probably would never. F- find the fifth one because obviously one two three you say oh i have st- still have space you know but then from <laughs> i will be oh my god there are so many left so yeah well let me ask you this then chadi uh do you have a, a a favorite role that you have either sung or would like to sing this is maybe a little bit easier because there are so many parts that I find amazing, but that I cannot sing because, well, as you know, if you are a bass baritone, you can never right. sing a tenor or a soprano part. So, um, so far what I have sung, I found amazing uh, figure, Mozart's Figaro. It's, it's a very, sure. very nice part um, because it's, it's extremely nice to sing, but it's also very, very nice to play and to act on it. And, and this libretto from Da Ponte is amazing. This is, this is really one one of the goodest inst- examples where you have great music and great text together. I mean, it's a little bit like a board game. If you have good mechanism and a good theme, you know, then it's amazing. Of course, you can say, okay, the, the theme is shit, but the game is great. Uh, you know, the components are ugly, but uh, the mechanics is fantastic, so I will play it. But it's, yeah, it's something maybe lacking. You know, I think in opera it's the same. If you have gorgeous music but a boring libretto, yeah, okay, it's it's great music. You, you can close your eyes and forget what the story is about. But it's not the same as having uh, amazing story, amazing um, situations. You know, a good uh, poem and then amazing music. And Figaro is one of of those parts. I would say the the servant of Don Giovanni Leporello. Uh, and in Don Mozart, this is also an amazing part. I did it a couple of times. It's so fun to sing. It's so fun to play. Uh, Nick Shadow in, in The Rake's Progress by Stravinsky. It's also a fantastic part that I sung. I mean, this is really am- amazing, but yeah, I could go on and on, but it's usually, yeah, those parts where everything comes together, you know, have you sure. a nice thing and, and a great character to play. And that, that's important for me, too. When I think of, uh, like, La Traviata, I think has some incredible, beautiful, familiar music, um, and it, it sounds wonderful. But it's a boring story about a courtesan who gets consumption. I mean, I, I couldn't care less about the story in La Traviata, but the music I love. Uh, yeah. um, I, I want to tell you a story that, because I don't know many people that know opera, anytime I try to tell someone this, this little anecdote, it just makes no sense to them. So I'm going to try this on you, Shadi. Okay. It, it, might, it might not work, but I'm going to give it a, give it a shot. Um, so when I was working in the music library... Uh, uh, one of the girls who came in there was a was a, a soprano, I think, um, and she would tell me about operas that she was working on, uh, and I would tell her about ones that I was listening to, and I was constantly surprised that she was strictly coming at it from a technical perspective, and she didn't care much about the story. Uh, we had completely different uh, perspectives on operas and why we loved them, but I still loved talking to her. So one day she comes in, and she says she got a part in uh, Der Fliegende Hollander, in the, the Flying Dutchman, a Wagner opera. Uh, and I said, oh, that, that's awesome. Uh, what, what are, you, are you singing Senta? Because Senta is the, the heroine in it. Um, 
And this girl was in Boston, and I don't know if you know what Boston accents are like, but when I said to her, that's wonderful, are, are you singing Santa? She said, no, no, I'm a little bit off to the right of the stage. <laughs> don't know if that makes sense to many people. It's obscure. I thought it was hilarious at the moment. Uh, I've never forgotten that moment, and there's not many people that I can relate that anecdote to who realize, oh, Senta is a character. It sounds like someone in Boston saying Senta. So I just had to – finally I run into someone who might understand that anecdote. I just had to tell you about it. <laughs> really, this really – I mean, I, I can barely believe this really sounds like an, uh, those Sopranos jokes because I don't know if you know, but in the opera world, we have l lots of jokes mostly about tenors and, and Sopranos. Maybe oh, maybe like about how they're sort of silly ingenues or how they're, how they're not smart, that kind of joke? Exactly. I mean, maybe it's because everybody's <laughs> jealous because they have um, the bigger, the bigger, the biggest parts and the m most money. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, they have this reputation of being, you know, so focused of, uh, on sounding good that they more or less, yeah, um, leave the rest, uh, you know, behind. And um, yeah, so that, and this really sounds, I mean, it, 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 you, 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 I mean, if you had told me I have a joke for you, I would have uh, understood. <laughs> but if it's a real anecdote, this is even better. That's what I mean. Yeah. Uh, well, Shadi, I'm, I'm delighted to get to talk to you, and not just because it's awesome to meet someone who knows opera, but I, I just have to thank you for creating these three little gems that I have really enjoyed. Uh, as, I, as I wrote when I wrote about Onirim, um, I have a lot of solitaire games I really like, but not many that are this um, small, and I don't mean that to denigrate how, how they are, but, but they're just... They're, they're perfectly tiny and, and precious, and they're, they're like intricate little gems uh, that I can take out and look at, and I don't have to spend all evening doing them. Uh, and they, they just they, they, they have a perfect spot in my game library, and I want to thank you for those. And by the way, I also want to tell you, I think you'll appreciate this. Um, I, I, I play it... Uh, I, I, I live with my best friend, and, and his girlfriend comes over, and, and he's got a child, and his girlfriend has a child. Um, and sometimes I'll, I'll play solitaire games on the dining room table, uh, and a lot of times uh, either my friend's son or his girlfriend's son will come in, and these children will see the games that I'm playing, and they'll be completely uninterested in it <laughs> because it's got chits or zombies or something silly they're not into. Uh, they were both – like Onirim was it was uh, – a, a whole other different thing. They wanted to know what it was, and the little six-year-old boy sat next to me, and he wanted to know the rules, and he started suggesting moves in Onirim. He immediately gravitated towards it in a way that other games don't. And I thought, this is wonderful. Here I am, you know, 48. Here he is, six years old, and, and there's something that we are both equally appreciating. And it has to do with the artwork that Elise has done. It has to do with the simplicity of your gameplay mechanics. Um, but there are almost no board games I have that I can say that about. Uh, so well, I appreciate speaking you. with you, and I, and I deeply thank you for, for making these games. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. It's, it's really nice to hear. I almost feel like I should apologize for subjecting you to so much opera talk, but uh, I, you know I couldn't resist. It was it was so much fun to get to geek out with someone over opera. That that doesn't happen very often. So thank you for listening. Um, I heartily recommend Onirim, Sylvian or Castellan. If you were to ask me, hey Tom, which one should I get? I only want to try one of these. I don't just want to buy all three. I don't know if they're for me, but I'm curious enough that I want to try one of them, and then we'll see about the other two. So here's how I would rank them. Uh, definitely get Onirim first. Onirim is probably the easiest to learn, and it has the most variety in terms of the different, uh, I think they're called expansions, but they're basically variants that, that add different cards uh, with different rules. There's a lot of mixing and matching you can do. Uh, but that, I think, is the best example of this Oniverse approach of a really colorful, shrewdly designed solitaire game that takes less than 10 minutes. And by the way, all of these have two-player variants, um, which, like any cooperative game, I kind of don't really see the point. But if you have someone you want to play a cooperative two-player short game with, all three of these Oniverse games are, are also uh, good for that. So first I would recommend Onirim. My second choice would be Castellan. 
because it's so it's so different. I mean, all three of the games are different, but Castellan, because it's a tile-based game, it's about making geometric shapes that have specific gameplay and even uh, narrative significance. Uh, there's there's a lot of very different kind of charm in Castellan. Uh, so that would be my second choice. Uh, and then finally, my third choice, not because I don't like it, but just because I like the other two better. I very much like all three of these. But my third choice would be Sylveon. Sylveon, I, one of the things I actually do like about Sylveon, but it makes it more of a specific type of experience than the other two games, which, actually, that's that's a poor way to put it. How, how would I... Well, here's the thing. Sylveon has a very definite pattern every time you play it. Um, Onurim and Castellan, they unfold all kinds of different ways. Even though they have a gameplay structure, uh, there's a lot of, okay, how's it going to work out this time? Am I going to do well? Am I going to do poorly? Am I going to emphasize these kinds of strategies or those kinds of things? Um, I just feel like there's a lot more... There are more unknowns when I sit down to play Onarim or Castellan. Sylveon always unfolds with a deck building phase and then a gameplay phase where you're kind of playing this cool tower defense where you're protecting a forest against advancing fires. Uh, as I mentioned in my conversation with Shadi, I also think that in all three of these games, the single most discouraging thing is this terrible card called the Blaze card in Sylveon. And so much of Sylveon, I feel, is about whether or not you can avoid that card. You know, are you ready for it? Did it come at the wrong time? Were you caught flat-footed and now your forest is burning? Uh, so because of that, there's always that that bifurcated structure. Here's the deck building phase. Now use that deck in this, uh, in this forest fire tower defense game. Um, because that's so particular every time, uh, that's the one I like the least, even though I like it very much. It, it's still very cool. I love uh, all the little cards that go in the deck and how they interact with the forest fire and the different powers they have, how they inter interact with each other. There's some difficult strategic choices to make as the fires are marching towards your trees. Uh, so I recommend all three, but if you only want one, I would go first Onirim, second Castellan, third Sylveon. So thank you for listening this week. Uh, I will be back next week with a podcast about, well, I don't really know. So tune in next week and, and find out. Uh, and I hope to see you then.